Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Authoritarian regimes have expanded their repressive habits, ever keener on muzzling independent media. Last year, 22 journalists were known to have been murdered worldwide, a sharp rise, according to an NGO, the Committee to Protect Journalists. Now the Nobel Prize judges have taken note of that grim trend, and this year they awarded the annual Peace Prize jointly to Maria Reza of the Philippines and Russia's Dmitry Muratov for their efforts to safeguard freedom of expression. Freedom of expression, which is a precondition for democracy and lasting peace. Both are campaigning editors renowned for investigations that have angered their respective governments, and for doing so, they both come under personal attack. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking how to defend the free press. Although my guests, the joint prize winners, are separated by thousands of miles, they're united in a fight to expose abuses of power in their home countries. Dmitry Muratov is the veteran editor of the liberal newspaper Novaya Gazeta. For 30 years, he's fought to bring transparency to corrupt oligarchies and unaccountable presidential fiefdoms of post-Soviet Russia. His paper's investigations into the Kremlin-backed war in Ukraine and torture in the military reached more than 23 million readers. I caught up with Muratov by phone just after his win, and he told me he's dedicating his award to six of his colleagues killed following their reporting. The greatest achievement of his career, he says, came in the Chechen wars, when his writers helped to free 170 prisoners of war. So what's next for the paper, known simply to Russians as Novaya, the new one? The paper's investigations are a closely guarded secret for reasons of staff safety as well as journalistic pride. The Nobel Peace Prize this year has also brought a human rights and anti-fake news campaigner less well-known outside her native Philippines to global attention. Maria Ressa is co-founder of Rappler, a rare news organisation in her country, in criticising the president, Rodrigo Duterte, and how his government spreads propaganda on social media. 
Ressa is mercilessly trolled online, and not only that, she faces up to six years in prison after being convicted of the previously unregistered crime of cyber libel last year. So I asked her what the past few weeks have been like since she heard the Nobel News. I'm still a little stunned, but for our team in Rappler, it was like a shot of adrenaline. It's been a long time that we've been under attack. And for Filipino journalists, we had been trying to find a way to unite because, you know, when it's a battle for facts, journalists are all on the same side, which is on the side of facts, right? In the last week, I've been talking to other journalists all around the world, and I particularly had wanted to speak to some of the guys who are in places that are worse than the Philippines, you know, to remind them. Because I, frankly, I think we're placeholders for exactly how difficult it is to be a journalist today. So the editors in Venezuela, in India, in Indonesia, which isn't that far from us, these are tough places to be a journalist today, trying to hold power to account. You reference a long time of working under incredibly difficult circumstances in the Philippines. Rapt has been around since, I think, twenty. 12. Just tell us what brought it into life. We're turning 10 years old in January, our website. But in in 2012, my co-founders and I, there are four of us who founded Rappler, we came from the largest multimedia operations in the Philippines. And I wanted to, to try to understand how information ripples through society. But the more I worked with our thousand journalists, the more I realized that technology was a massive game changer. And part of the reason we, we decided to experiment with Rappler was because it took too long for a traditional news organization to be able to pivot, to let go of legacy systems and a legacy culture. With Rappler, there were four or five of us above 40. And then we hired the smartest 20-somethings I could find. Right. So from managing 1,000 journalists, I went to 12, including myself. So with massive culture shock. But the goal is to build communities of action. You won your reward for your reports on the authoritarian regime of President Rodrigo Duterte and his war on drugs. He's called journalists like you vultures, spies and lowlife, so he takes you seriously at least. Tell me, why did you feel that you needed a new way to approach news analysis? And what were you actually fighting against? Well, so first, it's communities of action to use technology to build institutions bottom up, right? So we were the first to harness technology. We set up as a Facebook page. Filipinos spend the most time on the internet and on social media globally. So the experiment from 2012 to 2016 was amazing when journalists who have the facts, armed with the facts, actually created a civic engagement arm that helped to solve real-world problems using the technology. It's pretty magical. All of this changed in 2016 with the election of Rodrigo Duterte. And that was when, and I, and I would say globally, this shift when journalists, news organizations lost our gatekeeping powers to technology platforms, there were two things that were happening that we called attention to that we continue doing stories on. The first is this brutal drug war. After he took office, hours after that, the first death in the drug war began. When he was running for office, he'd always said, you have to make Filipinos afraid of you. That's the kind of leadership he stood for. The second point of contention is I, I call it the, the information war, but it is a weaponization of the internet. In 2016 as well, 
we realized because we live on social media that something had drastically changed, that there were attacks. Anyone mentioning the drug war was pounded to silence. And we began to feel a shift in our information ecosystem. These two things intertwined and created an enabling environment that crumbled our institutions from within. You've come under strong personal attack online since President Duterte took office. What has that experience been like as a journalist? The fun part of Rappler really, you know, doing a startup from 2012 to 2016 was incredible. I mean, it's incredibly humbling to see how journalists could use the internet and all the different things. But all of that wonder went away with our presidential elections in 2016, because that was when we began to see the internet weaponized. We found out, and this was only in retrospect, that for the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the whistleblower there called the Philippines the Petri dish, where they tested these tactics of mass manipulation. And if they worked, his word was ported it over to the West. Facebook called us ground zero. What I realized, and and I had had both the the curse and the blessing of being a target, is that when that happens, you can't respond because the main goal of these attacks is to pound you to silence, And then the second thing is to kind of create a fake bandwagon effect to make everyone think you're a horrible journalist. Well, 60% of the attacks, and this is from a UNESCO and ICFJ report that looked at almost half a million attacks against me in these years, 60% were meant to tear down my credibility, 40% to tear down my spirit. But that was only the beginning because this, all of these social media attacks created the enabling environment for the government to file legal cases. So here we are, I'm like more than 30 years, this year is my 35th year as a journalist, right? In less than two years, the Philippine government filed 10 arrest warrants against me, 10 cases against Rappler. And you know the end goal of course is in this war of attrition is to shut us down, which it did try to do in January of 2018. We just fought back. The only way journalists effectively fight back is by shining the light. That's part of what the Nobel helped us do. What was it that you were reporting that made the president so angry? A brutal drug war that began hours after President Duterte took his oath of office. People just started dying, you know, and and enabled by President Duterte saying, go and kill them. So he was apparently saying, if I remember correctly, it's all right to kill drug dealers, which obviously is a rather stupid thing to say. But was that really what, what I heard? Was that what you felt that was being signaled here or something broader? It's okay to kill is normal now, right? That's that's a big shift. He admitted before he became president, he admitted to me that he had killed three people. This was before he was elected. And I had asked him, you know, how can you break the law and be the one in charge of implementing the law? And he just said, you know, well, that's why you shouldn't elect me. And then we elected him. So in 2016, what we realized was that we'd never lived through this. He he actively told the police that if they fight back, shoot them, kill them. He even said there will be thousands of bodies in Manila Bay, referring to dumping the bodies. For journalists, he threatened us, direct quote, just because you're a journalist, you're not exempted from assassination. It's violence and fear. That's how he leads. But the two big reasons why we came under attack was we refused to change the number of people being killed in the drug war. We demanded accountability and an end to impunity of this brutal drug war that human rights activists had said in about three years time, 
27,000 people were dead. The police went from 7,000 to 2,000 to 5,000 to 8,000. So the numbers changed. The second reason is because we live on social media. I look at network analysis. I look at the data. And we knew for certain that we were being manipulated. So we exposed the propaganda war, this weaponization of the Internet, which was then closely followed by the weaponization of the law. I'm interested in the way that you've used technology and particularly social media to fight back. A lot of people say when they get trolling at a mass scale, the best thing you can do is ignore it. But you don't. Why not? It's not even engagement. Look, if you're quiet, then the narrative will just obliterate you. Again, a lie told a million times becomes a fact. In a platforms, all the social media platforms use algorithmic distribution and amplification that prioritizes the the spread of lies laced with anger and hate over really boring facts. I've said that phrase so many times, it's like drummed into my brain because that is what the research shows. It brings great money to the platforms, but to people like me on the front lines, it strips away any protection you have. So the only protection you have is to actually tell people how they're being manipulated. I've felt for a long time like the punching bag because journalists are handcuffed. I'm not going to go and curse somebody out, um, but this is kind of what the algorithmic distribution demands. You know, the more anger, the more hate, the faster and further your message spreads. I always say that social media platforms are now biased against facts and they're biased against journalists. The way we fight back is by knowing the facts, by looking at the data that is publicly available, but we're prevented oftentimes from actually putting the data together. If you use social network analysis, we do two things. As a fact-checking partner of Facebook, we fact-check the lie. Once we have the lie, we can use natural language processing to, to look at what other messages are being spread. But then you look for the network that spreads the lie. And so just just to be clear, as I understand it, you know where they are, you can you can data visualize that and you can put that information out there. So when might I see it? For instance, if an election is called or an opposition politician is in the news, would that be the time that I would see a particular bulge in fake news, aggressive activity? It depends on the messaging and the target. So, for example, in 2019, we exposed networks of disinformation connected to Ferdinand Marcos Jr., who has now declared his candidacy for president. And what we saw in our 2019 midterm elections are the candidates that had the most vulnerabilities. They were either accused of murder. For example, a senator who led the drug war, who was the police chief who led the drug war in Davao City, Duterte's hometown. These were the accounts that had the most networks of disinformation because they needed to shift reality. This is what social media allows you to do because these amplification algorithms actually divide and they radicalize. And if you are trying to change the past in real time, in front of everyone, it's not hard to do. You work as a fact-checking partner for Facebook. And I do find that a bit difficult to square with being so outspoken about the kind of ills in the spread of misleading information or downright lies and fake news that Facebook is so intertwined with and is reputationally, right now, particularly 
struggling with that reputation. So why work with them? Because fact-checking is the core of what we do, right? And the fact that we now have to fact-check is because of the information ecosystem we're in. I think that we've opened Pandora's box. Technology is going to be a part of that. But an atom bomb has exploded in this information ecosystem. And these platforms have the ability to make it better immediately without waiting for lengthy process of getting legislation drafted. For those of us on the front lines, that is part of the reason we continue to work with them. But the other reason is because our audience is on Facebook. You know, 100% of Filipinos on the internet are on Facebook, 100%. That's more than 72 million, I think, at last count. And beyond that, right, there's more than that. There's YouTube, there's TikTok. I guess I just worry that when we splinter reality this way, that you cannot have democracy, that if you don't have a shared reality, you cannot solve the problems. And there's a ton of problems to solve. But hang on a minute. I mean, the question that I asked you, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of our listeners will absolutely agree with, with what you've just laid out there. But the, but can you be, so to speak, in the dragon's mouth and attacking the dragon at the same time? That would be the question about linking up with Facebook, wouldn't it? That it is, to a large extent, a big part of the problem. And simply to say, well, we use it for fact-checking and to do fact-checking at mass scale does slightly go around that awkwardness. No, I don't have that problem because Facebook is our internet. Are you going to be part of humanity or are you not? There's no choice as a journalist. I mean, I wish I could shut it down, but I can't. And I also believe that the solution will come from that. News organizations, our business model has crumbled, right? The new, a new sustainable business model is going to include technology. And technology platforms, what they're doing is unsustainable, not just for themselves, but for society. They're going to need to introduce the principles of journalism in there. These are my beliefs. But, you know, this idea that if you're against Facebook, that you can't work with them. If we hadn't worked with Facebook, we were like alpha partners of Facebook. We knew Facebook better than Facebook did. Facebook opened their offices here a little bit before the elections in April of 2016. We knew their platform better than they knew it here in the Philippines. And if we hadn't helped, it would be worse than what it is. If we didn't sound the alarm for our people in 2016, it would be worse than where we are today. What makes you think you're getting somewhere? Do you think the Peace Prize, being a co-recipient of the Peace Prize, and you are the recipient with the, the locus in the debate about social media... One might say, well, this will make it harder for tech giants to ignore your warnings. But overall, they have been pretty impervious to criticism, impervious to the remonstrations of governments. What makes you think they'll listen this time? There's a sea change. So there have been four whistleblowers, right? You had Roger McNamee when he wrote Zuck, an early investor in Facebook. Then you had Christopher Wiley in Cambridge Analytica, Sophie Zhang with what she disclosed in The Guardian, algorithmic fake likes, and then Francis Hogan. I think this is the first time that finally we're moving away from content moderation to algorithmic distribution. That has always been the problem, right? I see the change so slowly because the problem is this, that 
that the news comes to us at lightning speed, but our capacity to absorb and our capacity to act remains at glacial human speed compared to the technology. That's part of what governments, democratic governments need to sort out. I'm optimistic because, you know, I have to be optimistic. I have no choice. But the reason I'm optimistic is I grew up in CNN when CNN was was chicken noodle news. And then it became a global breaking news leader. I saw the shifts that happened there. And I gave Facebook that same benefit of the doubt, right? It doesn't happen overnight. It's just significantly slower because of surveillance capitalism. They're just making too much money. But at a certain point, I don't think the tech platforms are going to want to be known as big tobacco. I suppose I don't have a concrete answer for you, Anne, except that I have no choice but to be optimistic because I believe technology is burned into our future and we have to get from where we are to where we need to be. I've no doubt about that that at all. And we should say you've taken immense personal risks, which you've rather downplayed in this interview to, to do so. I mean, are you able to travel to collect your prize and usually Nobel prize winners and they get a couple of invitations you know arguably even as important as from the economist asks to go and spread the message uh, last time i spoke to you, you weren't really able to leave the philippines what's your personal situation i've lost my right to travel essentially it's there's like a travel ban for the last year but i keep trying you know what do you do right you just keep trying these are my rights. This is what the Constitution says. I should have been allowed to travel. So I've taken one of those denials and brought it up to the Supreme Court. I will file applications to travel. I will stare these down. I am, well, I have to be positive. I will win these cases in court. But have you heard anything at all from those in power about receiving the prize? Kind of like Dimitri. Three days later, so my government was slower than Putin and the Kremlin. But on Monday after the Friday, I get a congratulations and then this twist of, it was very strange. The fact that Maria Ressa got the Nobel means there's press freedom in the Philippines and the government tried to take responsibility, which is fine. Just give us our rights, you know? President Duterte's reign is, or at least as constitutionally bound, is due to come to an end shortly. Do you see a sea change coming at all in your country? I mean, bearing in mind that the vast majority of Filipinos have supported him in that campaign, as at least as the front of house story being that it is the campaign against illegal drugs. They're very well aware of his brutality and he remains consistently popular. Do you think that will change anytime soon? So in 2016, President Duterte was elected with 39% of the votes. It was a field of five candidates. We don't have runoff elections. And with this kind of weaponization of the internet with disinformation and information operations on the citizens and a climate of violence of fear, I don't know what the real, what the real state of Filipino opinions are. Right? But here's the thing. We will have elections. There are already 10 presidential candidates. Five of them are very viable. They have the political machinery to, to go against each other. But everything we do will be nothing if the platforms that deliver the news don't put guardrails and protect the facts. You know, we're dealing with this now after the Nobel win. Again, the attacks have begun all new accounts, the information operations and the trolling are at new highs. We shouldn't have 
to go through this. And does the peace prize make any difference to this? And, and you can be honest, I think people are sometimes feel when they're the recipient of something of such sort of grandeur in the in the global system, but very much a, a prize that has a small p progressive bent. It celebrates the values of liberal democracy. It's got a bit of a fight on its hands. Does it change anything for you, for your colleagues at, at Rappler, or is it just nice to have on the mantelpiece? It's a significant shot of adrenaline for the team that's exhausted for us and for Filipino journalists. But I think more than that is, you know how I've been trying to sound this global alarm since 2016, and I feel like Sisyphus and Cassandra combined, right? Well, here it is. The Nobel Committee says, here, this, is, this prize is going to journalism. The last time they did that was in 1936, 85 years ago. And that journalist languished in a Nazi concentration camp. The focus of freedom of expression, the focus on journalists highlights this moment. You know, how we have so much at stake and how we need to take the battle for facts seriously because it is changing. It is killing our democracy. It is killing our shared space. Let me talk about the Philippine elections. If we don't get these guardrails, this is an existential moment for democracy in the Philippines. You know, will we have rule of law? Will we be able to control the coronavirus? And what about protecting our people? All of these things will depend on leadership. And the problem right now is that since definitely since 2014, 2015, Digital authoritarians or authoritarians that were already in power exploited these social media platforms to consolidate power, to manipulate people. And we all lose in this. I don't understand what part of that is hard to understand for the people who have the power to change it. Maria Reza, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. And thank you so much for having me. And I'd love to know what you think. Are you optimistic, like Maria Reza, that technology can eventually be harnessed for good? And can social media platforms be part of the answer? Or are they simply the biggest driver of the problem? And what's your experience been? Last week, we talked about a fictitious world of reprisals and corruption in The Sopranos with its creator, David Chase. And the debate among those of you who listened in my Twitter feed turned on whether Carmela Soprano, played by the brilliant Edie Falco, was more victim or colluder in Tony's misdeeds. But comment of the week went to a listener who, on learning that I got to watch gangster movies in order to prepare for this show, tweeted simply, how do I get your job? Ah, that's another story, Robert. Do write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. And a good Apple rating is, of course, an extra blessing if you're in the mood. And while we've got your attention, why not become a subscriber to The Economist for your best introductory offer go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.